When fishermen don't fish, they fight. Jerusalem Church has existed uh, for almost 300 years. What did the founders long to see God do in and through this church? I'd love to know what they were all about many, many years ago, because I think it's important that a local church knows what it's all about. If a church is unclear about what it's trying to do and not unified in doing it, bad things happen. Personal preferences, opinions, and agendas take over. Conflict divides and scatters people. Secondary things become primary things. And the primary thing, the gospel, is sent to the back of the line. Selfishness is a vicious enemy of mission. See, selfishness turns a church inward, completely inward. Selfishness consumes valuable time and energy that otherwise could be devoted to moving that church ahead on mission. It's true, disunity paralyzes and oftentimes kills local churches. When fishermen don't fish, they fight. Now, some of you have been part of Jerusalem church all your life. Others, only a few years. Some of you, only a couple months. Do you know what Jerusalem Church is all about? Do you know what we're trying to do as a church? Do you know our mission, our primary thing? I've been a part of Jerusalem Church for almost three and a half years now. I've learned a lot about this church's past. I've learned about its present. And uh, though my perspective is limited... I have learned that there have been significant things throughout our church history that have clouded our mission and attacked our unity. So it's as critical as ever that we unify behind a common mission. As important as our past is, we cannot live in our past. I don't think that's healthy. The long-term health and growth of our church is affected by our ability to think and plan generationally and strive side by side for a common mission that can outlast each one of us here at this church. I don't know about you, but I am working hard here uh, for us now as a group uh, because in a hundred years from now, I want the fruit of my labor to to be meaning something. That we can be stronger then. So we need to think about where does God want our church to be in the next five years, in the next 10 years, in the next 30 years, in the next 100 years, in the next 400 years. What might you and I do together right now that will benefit the saints of Jerusalem church 100 years from now? We have to think that way. When fishermen don't fish, they fight. Now, I hope that you've heard this before. In fact, I hope that this has been so drilled into your mind and heart uh, that you just can't forget, forget it. But here is what Jerusalem Church is all about. Leading people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God. That's what we're about. That's what we're about. And in a hundred years, I hope the saints of this church are still striving for that mission. So right now, we must preach, teach, study, 
pray, sing, evangelize, disciple, serve, fellowship, encourage, eat, sleep, and breathe toward that end. Toward that end. And folks, we have made progress. We have made progress. It is exciting. We are moving ahead. We have to move ahead. It's exciting where our church is. God is alive and well. God is working in our church. Can you see it? And I I just hope you see where we have come, where we were at one time and where we are now. Does that excite you? Do, Do you want to be involved with where our church is going? But I need to say this. There are things in our church right now that are threatening our unity in the mission. And if we don't work through those things together and unify around God's mission for us as a church, if we don't put our personal preferences and opinions and agendas aside so we can focus on a shared mission, I think we're actually on borrowed time as a church. We must have unity. We must have unity. We must have unity in Christ. If we want to see God do amazing things in and through this church for years to come, we must have a clear mission, and then we must have incredible teamwork in that mission. Unity, we must have it. Before we we get into the text, I want to tell you a little story that comes from Max Lucado. Uh, to close out this introduction, I've read very little of Max Lucado, uh, but years ago, I, I found this story somehow, and, and it, it's really helpful, and, and it's a great story, and it sets the tone for our passage today, and I think you'll identify with how Max tells the story and how I, I put it together here. Max Lucado was in high school, and he went on a fishing trip with his dad and one of his friends. And they were excited about the trip. They were anticipating it. And the time came and they headed to their destination and they set up their camper and and they went to bed. And as they were sleeping, um, a strong norther blew in and it got cold fast. And in the morning, it was violently windy as they're in their camper and they look out and they notice white caps on the lake. So they're not going fishing this day. And they couldn't fish, so they stayed in their camper all day. Then they went to bed, and the next morning, they awoke to ice. Uh, The camper door was actually hard for them to get open, so they were cooped up in the camper all day again. And here's what happened. Max recounted, I began to notice a few things I hadn't seen before. I noticed that Mark had a few personality flaws. He was a bit too cocky about his opinions. He was easily irritated and constantly edgy. He couldn't take any constructive criticism. Even though his socks did stink, he didn't think it was my business to tell him. Well, they had another long and cold night in the camper, and they woke up the next morning to sleet. So Max says this. We were flat out grumpy. Mark became more of a jerk with each passing moment. I wondered what spell of ignorance I must have been in when I invited him. Dad couldn't do anything right. I wondered how someone so irritable could have such an even-tempered son. We sat in misery the whole day, our fishing equipment still unpacked. 
Max said that the next day was even colder. And his dad just said, we're going home. And uh, here's the lesson that Max learned. And his application is really helpful. It's beautiful. Listen to him closely. I learned a hard lesson that week, not about fishing, but about people. When those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. When energy intended to be used outside is used inside, the result is explosive. Instead of casting nets, we cast stones. Instead of extending helping hands, we point accusing fingers. Instead of being fishers of the lost, we become critics of the saved. Rather than helping the hurting, we hurt the helpers. The result? Church scrooges. Bah humbug spirituality. Beady eyes searching for warts on others while ignoring the warts on the nose below. Crooked fingers that bypass strengths and point out weaknesses. Split churches. Poor testimonies. Broken hearts. Legalistic wars. And sadly, poor go unfed. Confused go uncounseled. And lost go unreached when those who are called to fish don't fish, they fight. He's right. If we don't unify around a common mission and devote our time and energy to advancing it, we'll just sit around and fight. We can't afford to sit around and fight. Andy Dufresne's advice from Shawshank Redemption can help us as a church. We either get busy living or we get busy dying as a church. But there's a flip side. There's another option. Max Lucado added this. But note the other side of the fishtail. When those who are called to fish, fish, they flourish. Nothing handles a case of the gripes like an afternoon service project. Nothing restores perspective better than a visit to a hospital ward. Nothing unites soldiers better than a common task. Leave soldiers inside the barracks with no time on the front line and see what happens to their attitude. The soldiers will invent things to complain about. Bunks will be too hard. Food will be too cold. Leadership will be too tough. The company will be too stale. Yet place these same soldiers in the trench and let them duck a few bullets. And what was a boring barracks will seem like a haven. The beds will feel great. The food will be almost ideal. The leadership will be courageous. The company will be exciting. When those who are called to fish fish, they flourish. Paul knew that if the Philippians were to continue to partner in the gospel and advance the gospel by striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, they would need greater unity. Their mission was clear, advance the gospel, proclaim Christ at all times. They were even unified in that, but some discord in the body was slowing them down. And Paul wanted it taken care of right away. Think back to Philippians 1. They were a good church. And they were partners with Paul in the gospel. Good things were happening. God was at work. But some markers throughout the book of Philippians uh, suggest for us that there was some disunity in the church. Paul zeroed in on encouragement that would build their greater unity. And they needed greater unity. We are not unlike the church at Philippi. God has begun a good work in us. 
And he is continuing that work. We are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We have unity. We have joy. Look at the progress that we've made. Praise God. The credit is his. But we have disunity as well. It's there if you look for it. And it's inhibiting our growth. So we need to listen to Philippians 2. We need this passage this morning. And we need to work this stuff out in our church for the glory of God. With the Holy Spirit's leading, I believe we can unify around God's mission for us, work together to advance it, and God can do amazing things in us, amazing things through us. I actually believe that. I do. God has something for this church. The story is too amazing for it not to reach more people with the gospel. Philippians second, uh, second, right, 2 begins like this, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Verse 1 begins in if-then clause. And verse 1 is the basis for the second part of the clause, which comes in verse 2. The then part of the clause, which we'll get to in a bit. The word so, or therefore, is a, a strong connection to the preceding verses that came right before it. It points back to those verses about conflict and suffering. Because unity is so absolutely critical and, and essential when there is conflict uh, and, and suffering outside the church, persecution. We need that unity inside. And when Paul says, if there is any, he's not questioning the four things that he then mentions. He's acknowledging them actually as certainties. He's saying if, but, but his point is these things are true. These things are certain realities that serve then as the basis for all that God calls us to in, the, in verse 2. So here's the foundation for unity. Four things. Number one, encouragement in Christ. Encouragement in Christ. It's, it's delicate to translate the word encouragement because the word has various nuances. And so scholars are kind of over the place, all over the place here on this one. But here is my humble attempt. First, let's understand the popular Pauline phrase, in Christ. That's going to set us up to understand what he's saying. In Christ. To be in Christ means to be in union with Christ. It means oneness in Christ, with Christ. Whenever someone trusts in Christ alone for salvation, they become united to Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And the word join that uh, Paul uses there is the same word that Jesus uses in Matthew 19 to talk about the union between a husband and a wife. This is an intimate union. In the upper room, Jesus told his disciples, John 14, 20, in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. You in me and I in you. That's unity. That's oneness. That's um, what we experience by faith with Christ, union with Christ. Later, Jesus prayed and described the Father being in him, he being in the Father, and his disciples being in him and the Father. There's a lot of ins. 
Uh, then he prayed this to his father, John 17, verse 23, I in them, you in me, that they may be perfectly one. One. It is that union or oneness with Christ that encourages us, brothers and sisters. Knowing that we are united to Christ is the greatest source of encouragement in life. It's the greatest imaginable. All the encouragement that we need is wrapped up in our union with Christ. That's what we need. We need to know that. And that just builds us up. Is there anything on the face of this earth that is going to encourage you more than being united to Jesus Christ, God's Son? What is it? Knowing we are united to Christ by faith gives us strength, gives us hope. Uh, it eases our pain. It encourages us and provides for us the foundation upon which unity in the church is built. Number two, comfort from love. Comfort from love. This is similar to encouragement in Christ. Paul reminded the Philippians that true comfort comes from being loved by Christ. Uh, like marriage, to be one with Christ means that you are extravagantly loved by Christ. And that deep love is able to comfort us, give us good cheer, reassure us amidst persecution. Paul asked this in Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Almost like, yeah, right. Or distress? <laughs> or persecution? <laughs> or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? What's going to separate us from the love of Christ? Then in verse 38 and 39, he explains that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. The relentless love of Christ for us has the power to comfort us. Paul said in 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 16 and 17, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope, through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. My friends, you can be comforted. You can be comforted. And the lavish love of Christ will do it. The lavish life, love of Christ will do it. The love of Christ that comforts our souls is the foundation of church unity. Number three, participation in the spirit. Participation in the spirit. Koinonia means partnership in Philippians 1 verse 5 and share in Philippians 3 verse 10. So when Paul uses koinonia or participation in verse 1, he means that the Philippians were partners and sharers and participants in the Holy Spirit. They each had close mutual association with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was given to them. The Holy Spirit was in them. In 2 Corinthians 13, 14, Paul used the phrase fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We enjoy mutual companionship with the Holy Spirit and each other. Sharing in the Holy Spirit creates the deepest bond among the saints. And that's 
what this whole participation in the Spirit is about. That's why participation in the Spirit is necessary and serves as the firm foundation upon which true unity and togetherness and oneness is built. There is no true unity outside of the participation in the Holy Spirit. There is none. Lastly, number four, affection and sympathy. Back in verse 8, Paul used the same word affection when he said, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection Paul uh, had for the Philippians was the affection of Christ poured into his life that he then was expressing for them. Now, this is kind of gross, but you might find it interesting that the Greek word for affection literally means intestines or bowels. So imagine that, that your spouse tells you over a romantic dinner, I deeply, deeply feel for you deep down in my bowels. I mean, that, that's not romantic. Guys, do not try that. that. That might not get quite the result that you were looking for. But that's how they talked back in ancient times. It was metaphorical language. It, it was symbolic language to represent deep-seated emotion. Paul added sympathy and mercy. Christ has the deepest affection, the deepest sympathy, the deepest compassion toward all of his people. Through Christ, God is tender, God is kind, and God is compassionate toward all of his dear ones, all of his children. And it's his affection and sympathy that serve as the foundation for the church's unity. Now take those four things and put them all together. Encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. Put it all together. It all comes to believers through Christ and serves as the foundation for unity among the saints. So when Paul instructs them in verse 2 to be unified, their unity stands upon, is built upon the truths of verse 1, all that Jesus is for us. So let me say it this way. Our unity as the body of Christ depends upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Unity is something that is right for us to enjoy. We should have it and enjoy it because of what Christ has accomplished for us already. And I want you to hear this loud and clear because I think some churches are really confused about this. No true unity can be enjoyed outside of the foundation of the gospel. If you lose the gospel, whatever unity you think you have, you don't have. That's why verse 1 is the firm foundation of verse 2. Now, now let's apply this to Jerusalem church. Saints, all of verse 1 is true for us in Christ. Yes. Yes. Therefore, we have a call directly from God to live out verse 2. You are called to it by God. He's making himself clear. We are called to live out verse 2 for his glory. God is calling you, Jerusalem church, to be completely united at one in Christ. Here's verse 2. Paul says to them, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, it seems repetitive to me. 
Um, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. Why not just say complete my joy by being unified? Wouldn't that kind of cover it? You could eliminate some words. Bible might be a little shorter. All right. Maybe Paul wrote it that way because he wanted to make absolutely sure to drive that point home. You've got to get this, Philippians, and I'm going to say it till I'm blue in the face, and I'm going to try to say it in different ways because you've got to get this. This is really important. Paul instructed them, complete my joy or fulfill my joy. See, Paul was already deeply, deeply uh, overjoyed at the Philippians and, and what God was doing in their midst, but their greater unity would complete his joy, would fulfill his joy. He longed for more joy that would come through their greater unity with each other. Harmony has the power to increase joy in a church, both for the pastor, the elders, the deacons, and everybody. Harmony, unity, oneness has the ability to increase the joy of our church. Church unity is so connected to church joy. Now, how do we reach this unity? What, what, what do we have to do? What, what, what did Paul have in mind for the Philippians? It's simple. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. That's what he had in mind. Number one, we must be of the same mind. Phreneo means mind. The word shows up ten times in Philippians, so it is a, a really big word, a, a big theme. It's really important. Paul wanted the Philippians to think the same way. If one of them liked the Pittsburgh Steelers, the rest of them should like the Pittsburgh Steelers. I'm just kidding. He actually didn't mean that at all. That's the exact opposite thing that we can get con confused here. He wasn't talking about tastes. He wasn't talking about preferences. He wasn't talking about being indistinguishable persons. Just all marching the same, you know, we all like steak, we all like vegetables, whatever. That's not what he's talking about. His idea was that every mind be conformed to Christ. Every mind be conformed to Christ. We should all think just like Jesus Christ. And therein experience great unity in him. I'm reading a book right now uh, about um, the 1936 uh, USA Olympic rowing team. And I don't know that much about rowing, uh, but obviously unity is crucial for a good and successful and fast rowing team. And during the race, the coxswain sits there and barks out orders. And he, he or she is, is kind of the, the coach during the race. Uh, they harmonize the team. Well, Matt Rossiter he, he has multiple Olympic gold medals in rowing, and he said this about his team's female coxswain. There's eight guys who all think very differently and could row very differently, so it's important that we're kind of her puppet as such. So she's just pulling the strings, and she's the tactician. She al she's almost our brains, so we just do what she says, and when she calls for more, we give her more. Jesus is our brains. He must be our thought tactician, pulling the strings on our minds so that we think in unison. And he does that, my friends, through his spirit and through his word. Through his spirit and through his word. Minds steeped in God's word begin to take on the flavor of gospel unity. None of us should think independently of Christ. 
Our minds should be controlled by the word of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, but we have the mind of Christ. What if one person on that rowing team was going the opposite way? I don't know exactly what would happen with the physics of all of it, but I can tell you this. They're not going to be happy, and it's not going to go well. It's just not going to go well. It's not good for the team. So we can't be naive about this. We are all going to struggle with this, of having the same mind. We're different people. We're wired differently. That's good. But when it comes to applying certain things in the church, it's going to create a rub for some of us. We're not always going to be synchronized in our minds. And that's why we need Jesus so much and why we must be committed to the scriptures at this church so we can unify one mind. Let me just encourage you with this. One of the best things that you can do to love your brother and sister in Christ here at Jerusalem Church is to study the Bible well and conform your mind to it. You want to love people here? Study. Conform your mind to Scripture so that you can all come around this Scripture as the Spirit leads us and unifies us in mind. Commit to deep Bible study so you can be conformed to it. Number two, we must have the same love. Remember remember what Paul said in chapter 1, verse 9? And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. Christ pours his love into us. We have it, friends. We have all of it. It's ours. He loves us. So as he pours his love into us and we pour out his love into the the life of others, into each other, we share the communal love of Christ. Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Because we are the beneficiaries of Christ's love, we now are in a position in him to share his love with each other. To to radically sacrifice for other people. You see, Christ is our communal love. God is love, right? And because Christ is God, Christ is love. We have him. So verse 1 is important again. We are comforted in the love that Christ has for us. We share in that comfort together. We share in that love together. There is a common ground for us for our love for each other. Now... I know that people have been wounded by the local church. You might have been wounded by your local church. And when the local church doesn't have the same love that Paul is talking about here, it's devastating for people. Some people feel more love, this is real, feel more love in gangs or cults or the LGBT community or clubs. Make no mistake. What the world experiences and calls love is not true love. It's not the same love of, that Christ is and all that he is. See, love in the fullest expression is found only in union with Christ and union with his people. And people are longing. They're right out there. You know these people, they are so longing to be loved, to be loved deeply. 
And that is why we must strive side by side to get them as quickly as we can to Christ and to God's people so they can experience the fullness of love in Christ. This is like a pressing thing every day we get up in the morning. Do you understand what Paul is saying? Do you understand what we need? Unity is accomplished through having the same love. Number three, we must be of full accord. The word is sumpsukos. It's a Greek compound word meaning souls together. It means harmony, unity of soul or mind. Hellenistic culture understood this in terms of deep friendship. Aristotle said this, friends have one soul between them. Friendship is equality. Now, of course, we can't share a soul with someone else. That's ridiculous. We don't share a soul with someone else. Paul's point, though, is that we have full accord, that we have full agreement, that we're in harmony here. Now, perhaps Anne of Green Gables could help us. Honey, this is partly for you. All right. At one point, Anne says to Marilla, and if you haven't seen these movies, guys, even you, they're well done. Come on. All right. She says to Marilla, Marilla, do you think that I shall ever have a bosom friend in Avonlea? To which Marilla responds, uh, a what kind of friend? A bosom friend, an intimate friend, you know, a really kindred spirit to whom I can confide in my inmost soul. A kindred spirit, a corresponding spirit. Well, that doesn't sound as idealistic or creative. The NASB says united in spirit. The Holman Christian Standard says sharing the same feelings. The recurring theme here as you're picking this up is unity, 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 oneness, togetherness. Number four, we must be of one mind. This is the same word that Paul used earlier in verse two for being of the same mind. So you ask yourself, can Paul be any clearer here? He's pounding this home. We must have the same mind. We must have one mind. We must have the sameness of thought. We, we need to think the same way. We need to have the thoughts of Christ. This is what Dr. G. Walter Hansen said. He nailed it. When believers are preoccupied with their personal agenda, they will pull in different directions and split the church into separate interest groups. By focusing on their own egocentric priorities, they will be disunited. Only by setting their minds on one thing will they be united with one common subject. It's the only way unity is going to come, folks. We set our minds on one thing. We are at our strongest when we set our minds on Christ, when we set our minds on his word and become one mind. That's when we're at our strongest. How can we strive side by side for the faith of the gospel when we're thinking all kinds of crazy things in our own corner of the world? We must set our minds on the one thing that can actually unify us, the gospel of Jesus Christ, not in the notes. Don't try to unify around politics. That's not where our unity is. Now, I think if we have the mind of Christ, we should try to unify in in some way around politics. Don't misunderstand my point. That's not going to unify us. A taste in the football team is not going to unify us. Where you live, how much you make, what you look like, the clothes that you... They're not going to unify us, but that's what so many people think unity is all about. Think of all the young people in the school that just identify with people simply because they're in one simple group and not in another group. What a terrible thing to unite around. Christ. Kids, listen up. 
this, this story is for you and everyone, but I think you're going to like this story. I think it's Aesop's fables. A lion used to prowl about a field in which four oxen used to dwell. Many a time he tried to attack them, but whenever he came near, they turned their tails toward one another, so that whichever way he approached them, he was met by horns of one of them. At last, however, they fell a-quarreling among themselves, and each went off to pasture alone in a separate corner of the field. Then the lion attacked them one by one and soon made an end of all four. United we stand, divided we fall. How can we as the body of Christ be divided? We have Christ. It is when we are united that we stand tall. It is when we are united that we stand strong and that we advance our mission. So can I challenge you and push a little bit here that we do a few things together. Let's work together on these things. Let's not gossip. Let's put it to death, actually. If you're doing it, stop. Instead, let's encourage each other and build each other up. Let's not neglect personal Bible study as we frequently do. Instead, let's study so that we can actually have the same mind. Let's not complain. Instead, let's give praise to God for what he's doing in our church. Let's not hate Let's not hold grudges. Let's not distance ourselves from each other. Instead, let's have the same love for one another. Let's draw even closer in the mess that we call our lives. Let's have the love of Christ. Let's not prioritize our own selfish agendas of what we want to see happen in the church, but instead, let's roll up our sleeves. Let's get to work together on one shared biblical mission. Let's do that. Brothers and sisters, if we're ever going to lead more and more people to find their greatest joy and pleasure in Jesus Christ above all things to the glory and worship of God, we must have unity. We must. So, I think a great place to start is to confess our sins and pray for unity. Unity. 